then again, I don't know if there's a great competitor here where people just say, we're moving this conversation elsewhere. You'd have to go to Facebook groups, which is not nearly the same. Yeah, I said great competitor. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Good morning. Doogles. That's me. You had quite a week, man. (laughs) I mean, it started off with a biggity, biggity bang wang. You know what I mean? I'll talk about the well, Denver be Nuggets. Careful. All right. Listen, <laughs> biggity bang wang is not something you should go around saying. No, I checked Apple's list of words you can't say to keep the podcast clean and biggity bang wang. <laughs> not on, not the list. on that list. No, it's not on the list. It might get added after this episode, but not on the list so far. Yeah. I mean, for those who don't know, Dougal's made a real live appearance at game five of the NBA finals last week and championship, baby. How was it? Oh, it, dude, the energy was wild. Wild. People have been waiting for decades for this to occur. So solid. Amazing energy. Meb Faber was there. So I slid into his DMs, yep. which my wife told me I'm not allowed to say. I'm not even sure if that's the right thing. But I slid into his DMs. I was like, let's meet up. But I think too busy. He was too busy. But it was it was so epic. And the game was... Uh, it was not a great game. Very low scoring. It was 99% of what the Nuggets did was play defense, but it was fairly solid, right? Their offense was off, so they held the other team back in defense. But then at the end, it exploded. The whole place exploded. Did you see Aaron Gordon walked home? He just like, he lives a mile away or something. He he left the stadium without a shirt. And As one does. Basketball shorts and just like walked home with the fans drinking beers. <laughs> I did not see. I didn't see that. That's a sounds about right, though. Christian Brown decided not to wear a shirt for the next four days, so it's all... yeah. I mean, and more power to all of them. I absolutely would. I haven't seen Jokic without a shirt, but that's a a different mm. story. Charles Barkley described Jokic as a big bag of milk. <laughs> so I don't know if anyone's asking for the big bag of milk to uh, uncarton themselves, as it were. So this guy, I actually want to talk about Nicola just for a moment because he did something that actually ties back to investing that boggles my mind. So first and foremost, I'm a basketball nerd and a stats nerd. So if you want to come at me about top uh, postseasons of all time, please do. The reasonable facts would say what he did is basically one of the top 10 uh, postseasons in the history of the league. Averaged 31 points, 13 rebounds, and... 10 assists per game uh, through the entire postseason. The team was 16 and four, if I remember correctly. I mean, just absolutely crushing. You can look at the advanced stats. It's incredible what this guy uh, did. After the game, he's interviewed and he was asked a, a wide variety of things, but there's this realization that he can't just go home, but that he has to stay and celebrate. And Listen, he had tons of fun celebrating. I'm sure he doesn't actually mean what he said, but I want to play this audio clip for you that talks not only about his surprise that he's stuck in Denver for a few more days, but also him talking about how basketball fits into his life. So again, Mm -hmm. I think the context is really important. This guy had one of the top 10 postseasons in NBA history. He's a two-time league MVP. He's he's clearly the best player in the world right now. And this is what he has to say about basketball. <laughs> Nicola, Darren McKee, 104 through the fan. Um, you said after the Lakers win, you said you were surprised that you didn't feel more. So I'm curious what you are feeling right now and if you're looking forward to a parade coming up in Denver. When is parade? When is parade? Thursday. No. <laughs> I need to go home. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, this is actually, uh, we succeed in our jobs 
and we 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 want they we want the whole thing it's a it's a it's a amazing feeling but like i said before it's not everything on the world you know i think i think still if okay i want it okay we not, not i we want it but i think it's not the most important thing in the world still uh, there is a bunch of things that uh that i like that i like to do I mean, probably that's no, that's a normal thing, you know. Nobody likes his uh, his job, or maybe they do. They're lying. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it's a good feeling when you know that you did something that nobody believes, and just it's, it was just us. It's just organization of Danunagas believe in us. Uh, every player believe in each other, and I think that's that's the most important thing. All right, there's there's three parts of that interview. The first part is. Him being extremely frustrated that he finds out the parade is three days later and he's stuck in town. <laughs> he almost buries his head in his hands. It's like, no, no, I got to go home, which is just a real live reaction. Then the second part is him saying basketball is just a thing in my life. And I don't know why I get so hung up on that, but I picture like Jordan crying and hugging with the tr- trophy. Yep, yep. Uh, Kobe, like literally making basketball his entire life since the probably he's the age of six uh and you see the joy and relief that comes with winning an nba title folks like kevin garnett i mean there's so many people that have made that trophy the pinnacle for them and really i think sacrificed everything outside of the sport simply to try and achieve that moment and he's i mean that's i don't know 30 minutes after he wins the title and the playoff mvp trophy and he's kind of like can I go home now, guys? <laughs> <laughs> this is not the most important thing in my life. I guess that contrast just, it just got to me. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then the third part is he says, this is just a job. Nobody really likes their job. <laughs> like he's straight this, like he's, <laughs> he's your trash pickup dude or something. I mean, <laughs> amazing. The, <sighs> I don't know. Yeah, it is fascinating. Like even when, because he's like this throughout, even throughout the season, right? It's it, this. This puts it in a whole different level because of what you mentioned. One of the best performances ever for the pinnacle of what most people would say that play this game is like what they play the game for, and this is what he's coming out with. It's, it's probably also why he's described as a big bag of milk. Yep. Like yep. it's not he. He's not this uh, finely tuned. His entire life is built around you know, being uh, pristine for the game of basketball. The guy, he was probably going to leave and ride horses. Like when he leaves here, like that's actually what he loves. Have you ever seen him in his little horse buggy? Oh, I have. Yeah. When he's in his horse buggy, he's yeah. It's like, he's like a a child that just got his Nintendo for the first time, you know, right in the mid eighties is what he is when he's in the horse buggy. When he wins the championship, he's like, that's cool. I got paid to do it. Yeah, it's like this is good. This is what yeah. I'm I'm here for. So uh, the investing parallel, I don't know if this is true, but I want to bounce it off of you. But I think of the, like the Jordans and the Kobe's that basketball consumed their life yeah, as yeah, like yeah. Uh, Warren Buffett, the other people that like truly passionate. Like I think Stanley Drunken Miller, like he says, I wake up at six on a Saturday and continue yeah. working because it's reading ten k's, yeah. right? I think. I don't know, maybe a, a Jim Simmons is like, hey, I, I figured I cracked this code, but investing's not really what I'm here for. I just like getting rich. I don't know. Maybe Edward Thorpe it took him was like three decades to crack that code. <laughs> yeah. So, know, was, you not, know, whatever I mean, it was. It wasn't that long. But who's, it was something the, like that. who's the investor that's like one of the world's best that's kind of like, oh, this is okay. I can't wait to get back and ride my horses. Does it exist? I mean, you know, is Jokic that odd? You know who might come closest? I don't know this, but it's Thorpe. Okay, that, that's a name yeah. I in the in my head. But yeah, yeah maybe. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But Thorpe, for, we talked about him before on the pod, but for those that don't know a lot about Thorpe, he, Ed Thorpe is his name, he cracked the Black-Scholes options equation before Black-Scholes did. And then once they did and put out a paper, he had to, he was like, well, you just put my formula like out in the world. So it doesn't work quite as well. All right, I'll go do something else. Before he got into investing, he was playing roulette 
it's about the uh, the craft. Maybe that's actually what's different because he used the same general craft in a variety of different ways. So he was all about that, the craft of mathematics, so to speak. Yes. Whereas it's not like, I don't know what else Jokic is going to go do that uses the same <laughs> like broad skill set. When he's in his horse and buggy, he's just buggying. There's there's no there's no pick and rolls. There's no spin moves, right? There's no hook shots. He's just sitting and smiling. There's a follow-up interview where they they dig in on that and he's kind of like basketball's a thing I do because I'm good at it. But he the silence almost implies like he doesn't really want to do it. It's just really that <laughs> it's my job. Like yeah. I'm re- I'm required to do this. I just happen to be incredibly I, I was, well competent. I was talking to someone about Jokic the other day and mostly about how, the fact that he doesn't do endorsements. Name a commercial that Jokic has been in. And when you when you take what you talked about, back-to-back MVP, you take this finals appearance, you take how he's gotten let's see, increasingly more and more attention over the past couple of years, but especially this year, he's got tens of millions of dollars easy in endorsements that he could pull in every year and does nothing. A lot of it because of what you're talking about here, and he just doesn't care. Like, that's just not why he does it. My point, though, was I said, even if he doesn't, care about endorsements for himself or the game when you're leaving that much money on the table. I mean, he could say, I'm going to do four commercials a year and give it all to Serbian children, or I'm going to do four commercials a year and start like an equestrian farm so that, you know, blah, whatever, for whatever reason. And it just, it seems interesting also that he's just like, I know I like, I don't want to, so I'm not going to like, there isn't, there isn't much more conversation, it seems. And I don't know exactly what his thought process is, but looking at it outside in. I mean, he does have a Nike deal. Wait. And then I don't know but, what but he does you, outside but of the US. Endorsement? Nike deal? Yeah, he does. Um, Wait, can you send me anything? I can, because they sent out. So Nike, best marketing company in the world, in my opinion. An incredible company. They uh, had a like a video go live as soon as they won the title specifically branded for with his logo and everything which i had never seen this goes to your point okay so this is brand because he's not in the commercials but he clearly has a relationship with them but it in a way it reinforces your point like (laughs) he's signed a contract with nike that you never hear from him about because of how quiet and understated he is i don't know man it's just a fascinating character like i i can't get into his psyche and really figure out uh, what's good or what's bad or the opportunity costs you bring up are great because there's 20 million dollars on the table for free if he wants it yeah but he doesn't appear to want it and there's a a huge part of me that wants to just say good for him everyone gets caught up in the rat race he doesn't appear to be caught up in the rat race he doesn't appear to be the person saying hey i know i make 50 million dollars a year but i need that to be 100 he just yeah. appears to say this is good i'm happy I just want to go home. Good for him. He's he's more like a like a Bobby Fisher. You know, show up, become a grandmaster and just exit. Like and that's the that's I'm not saying he's going to do that, but it it's the the attachment is what I'm talking about. Like the attachment to whatever that thing is. I think there's probably a lot more behind the Bobby Fisher yeah. situation. But uh can I I'm going to transition here to the opposite of not caring. The opposite of quiet. I'm going to talk about what is going down at Reddit right now. Reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T, is in fuego at this moment. Reddit is a website, and it consists of communities. Easiest way to think about it. So they create what they call subreddits. And these subreddits could be something like Skippy Dougal's podcast. I don't think there actually is one there. We could think about it. But I don't think there is one. But what would happen is people just go on there and talk about that thing. So we've talked about Wall Street bets historically. Wall Street bets is a subreddit. So you go to Reddit, go to the Wall Street bets subreddit, and then people talk about stocks, meme stocks, and everything. So they're communities. And people get all up into it. Community is a really strong thing. Historically, Reddit has been free. And so you get some of these, these Reddit subreddits like, r slash funny it's always r slash r slash funny you go and tell some jokes 
r slash gaming you talk about your favorite video games and they get tens of millions of people that are part of these programs well reddit says at the start at the beginning of this year it said we have to start charging for people to use our apis people that are high users to use our apis an api api stands for application programming interface it's a way that two computers can talk to each other so the way people use the reddit api is they say, I'm going to create my own third-party website, and I'm going to pull the data through this API. I'm going to pull the data from Reddit and then make some customizations. Sometimes they're customizing their site to make it more accessible for users that might have uh, disabilities. Sometimes it might just be like Reddit's website is just too hard to use. So I'm going to create Yeah, a, I think it's usability. Awesome uh usability like related yeah. where reddit's is pretty bare bones and so if you pull stuff from your their apis you can like take that information which is valuable and and improve the user experience and then it used to be a win-win it might not be anymore you can picture someone that's that's uh that has 40 million people that are a part of their community and reddit starting to charge for the api and so you're going to charge based on usage so every time you pull that data that's a lot of data they're pulling over so some of these spots are saying, if you start charging me, it's going to be $20 million a year. And that's not tenable for my, my community. So what they did this week is they said, we are going on strike. We are protesting. How do you strike when you are a subreddit? Is you just go dark. That means you shut the thing down, right, for a period of time. So nearly 9,000 subreddits went dark this week on Monday. And as of Friday, remained uh, about half of them remained dark. And they have millions and millions. This is like r slash music, r slash videos are two examples. Um, I already mentioned r slash gaming, right? r slash picks, r slash science. Like you can see they're, they're kind of basic terminology. So they're pretty broad communities that have just gone dark. And Reddit is standing by it. They're just like, bottom line is we want to be a company that can be self-sustained over a long period of time. If you have high usage for us, those are fees that we have to pay. It might not be 20 million, right? But we have to pay the the server costs that go into yeah. you using all this stuff. And so we got to be a business, period. And they're standing by it. Like no step downs is what it seems like a few days in. I am fascinated by what's going to happen here. Me too. I I appreciate that they're standing by it because if they truly made a thoughtful strategic decision and this is the right approach, then you know rip off the band-aid it will be painful and in some cases you have to grow these communities from scratch i think the other thing i heard buzz about Jiggles is that reddit basically is moderated by individuals that aren't paid yep. and so they've alienated a lot of that crew true true and that could end really poorly for them then again i don't know if there's a great competitor here where people just say we're moving this conversation elsewhere no, I mean, you, you'd have to go to Facebook groups, right? Or something like that, which is not nearly the same. Like yeah, they're... I said great competitor, dude. Oh, so <laughs> no. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. No, there isn't. I mean, it's why you have these communities of 40 million people. It's the place to go. And what, what, what it started getting me to think about is people start these companies. And the companies from the get are... We are a big community. It's all about like the, the fact that it's free, easy to use, that it's all about people gathering is a principle seemingly from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And so something like this, I get it from a business perspective, but it's hard when I mean, Reddit was founded about 15 years ago-ish, maybe a little, maybe a little more. And when you've run that long, without this as seemingly like at least not an explicit consideration that's a long period of time to then be like oh actually actually you know that thing we done told you like that's wrong and i i think it's hard it's really hard i agree with you though if it, it is a business it has to be self-sustaining you got to do your thing so and if you're going to do your thing you got to stand by it truth I just say you got to think about these things when it's not 40 million, but you have a community, your largest community is like 1 million. Like that's the point where you could be able to see in the future. Obviously, this is going to cost us a whole bunch of money. If we obviously want to be self-sustaining, I don't see how you could go any other direction.
You you don't know the financials off the top of your head, do you? I mean, is this mm-hmm. a money losing endeavor for fifteen years? That oh, has it, to- I'm I am sure. Hold on, let me. I'll look something up, but I'm sure it has to. I mean, th- that might be the main problem here, Dougals. Is how do you assuming that assumption is reasonable? Like, how do you go fifteen years and just say, "Oh, we're growing the communities" without ever actually turning a profit? So Reddit generates revenue from advertising. It generated, according to this one website I'm looking at, generated $350 million in 2021. It was valued at $10 billion at that time. But I don't see anything about profit. I would suspect that it's it's losing money. Uh, But it's, it's it's hard to see from here. Pretty phenomenal growth. So 2014, $8 million in revenue. At 10x that in the next four years, 2018, $80 million. And then 2021, $350 million is what I'm seeing in revenue. So solid revenue growth, but most likely is losing money. Yeah. Um, and what potentially happened, um, I might have to do some research uh, this next week, but is the source of their funds for their money losing endeavor dried up, whether that's more like venture capital, venture debt, or old fashioned traditional financing, whatever the case may be, it got way more expensive or dried up completely. And so they have to pull the rug and do that. The sad thing about losing user engagement is that it's gonna hurt their revenue. So their advertising revenue. So if it used to be 350 and they have half the engagement a year from now that gets cut in half you hope they make up that by more than half by charging for the apis but it's tough it's a game that you end up playing at that point uh i agree and it says there are 2.2 to go back to the subreddit point 2.2 million subreddits about 130,000 of them are active so you had i don't know if this number's right eight percent ish or whatever that uh that went dark this week and a couple other lines. I, I can't back any of this up. This is just stuff I'm finding as I'm searching around the internet right mm-hmm. now. But it says Reddit isn't currently profitable, unlike some of the third-party apps that use its APIs. So that's a right. That's that's interesting in and of itself. Yeah, they're trying to shift the profit pools from their third-party apps. And gosh, this happens everywhere because effectively, a third-party app doesn't own the valuable content. Mm-hmm. And so Reddit's going, why should we lose money over here? And you guys make money off our platform. We got to pull some of that back. I think it's it's reasonable. That's probably why they're standing by it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if they want to be, which they do, a self-sustaining business, you have to. There, mm-hmm. there, just, there isn't much of a choice. So, But I do feel bad for the, for the communities. right? I feel bad for it to a certain extent. I say to a certain extent. Because it sucks to have a quote unquote rug pulled out from underneath you like this. And I will, as I've always said, is that when you have something that is effectively a reverse arbitrage situation where someone is giving you something that does not make sense for them, yeah, you should make an assumption and construct your own usage, business, whatever it is, as if that goes away. Because at some point, you're really just using free, arbitrarily free situation. That should not be, right? I, we, I think we have talked, when we talked about this on the pod, we've talked about it more, I think, in the work context of like, yeah, you were getting away with that for a while. Woman that shows up at Twitter and you film your day and you're really just drinking smoothies. <laughs> you were getting away with that for a while. Don't get upset when you just can't get away with that again anymore. Like you should actually act as if that's not okay. Maybe just don't put it out on social media. Yeah, well, that, that's a, yeah, that's a, people need to know about what I'm doing. Five smoothies. Oh, man. All right. Let me pull something for the fishbowl. Really fascinating conversation, but I want to provide some background here. This is founded based on an opinion piece in the Washington Post, and it does touch on things that unfortunately have become political. I want to talk about the economic side of this. So, Long ago in the Inflation Reduction Act, Dougals, Biden and team agreed to, I think it was $90 billion in additional funding for IRS agents, right? And his Something pitch like was 
simply like we're gonna hire more agents to do more audits the more audits we do the more revenue we make pretty reasonable stuff in the debt ceiling negotiation 20 billion of that was pulled back and this article by Catherine Rappel tries to answer the question with that 20 billion dollar pullback how much revenue did that cost the mm. basically the US government it's now stuff. The, con- yeah. the conclusion she comes to is it's as much as 220 billion i disagree with that take um and i'll tell you why when we walk through the numbers but it's let's put it this way if they spent the money smart smartly the return on investment would be much greater than 20 billion i think that becomes clear when you look at the numbers but the way she breaks down this study is uh, diving into academic study that looked through a bunch of in-person audits that happened um in the 2010s and basically has the economics tied to those audits so it's super fascinating you can say if we spend more money auditing this, like think of this as a business, right? <laughs> you could have all these customers. You have this massive customer base and you could be like a cell phone provider or something. You could be like, if we spend money here, our return on investment is absolutely quantifiable and it's X. And if we spend money in another place, it's a money losing endeavor. That's effectively what they did with IRS tax audits. And one thing to add to that is it- to, to use what you just said, if we spend money here, high ROI, and people get mad. <laughs> well, if, but if you're we the spend... government. You're not, so like, if you're Verizon Communications, you're not trying to alienate your customers. If you're the government, I guess you could take that perspective of like, we're not trying to alienate <laughs> folks. But hey, at the end of the day, you're just trying to get people to pay what they owe for taxes. I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do. I'm just saying that, that I think that is the mentality. If we do this, people, quote unquote, important people get mad. If we do this, unimportant people get mad, right? And I, I do not, this is not, a, this is not a Dougal's take on the important, unimportant. I'm saying what I believe goes through the minds of like Congress folk. Fascinating. Cause I wasn't even going there. I was looking at this as an economics equation or like a Fair profitability enough. model because that's the way my brain works. So I'm going to continue to talk about it from that lens. And then you can educate me on it's that because you're exactly right. It's like who, what important person I'm pissing off by enacting this thing, treating this like a business. So probably not surprisingly, but I bet most have never thought about it this way. Basically, if you do a tax audit on people that are, um, have greater than average income, it has a positive return. If you do a tax audit on people that have below average income, it has a negative return. So gosh, if I lead the IRS right now, Dougals, even if no one throws me any more funding, I'm very tempted to just be like, hey, we're, we're, if you're in the 0.1%, if you're in the wealthiest 0.1%, like you get an audit regardless, as a favor like we will do your taxes for you <laughs> basically well i mean why doesn't that happen i don't That's know the, my one of my favorite moments and favorite is in quotes with an italicics italicics i'm talking about all the italicics <laughs> so there it was a few years ago i had to do oh the the irs came to me and they're like something seems off here and i went oh i don't i don't know what it might be so like i went back and i looked and said oh okay there was like some miscalculation so I put in a amended return. Then they came back and they went, they sent me like a marked up sheet that said, no, we think it actually should be this number. And I went, oh, what okay. service? Yeah. So I, so I put that number in and sent it back. And in my head, I went, if you knew what the number was supposed to be, why didn't you just do this in the first place? Like, I, 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 don't, I don't quite understand because the, the amount of back and forth, my time, their time, their dollars, like if you just know it, just do it. Baffling to me. If anyone wants to go down the rabbit hole on this, you can read all the ProPublica articles regarding the lobby to... Uh, so there are countries, and I think yep. New Zealand's one of them. Yep. Basically, send you your tax form filled out. Mm-hmm. You read through everything and say, looks good to me, and you hit submit. Yep. And that's how it should be, in my opinion. I think that makes everyone's life easier. But it takes money out of 
TurboTax's hands, uh, some tax preparers' hands. Like there's, yeah, it's, it's a, a big, big economy. There's a sub economy. Yeah, that sub economy yeah. gets hurt, and uh, so there's pushback there. So you can go down that rabbit hole. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole today. Effectively, what these numbers say is like, if you're in the top ten percent of earners or the top one percent of earners, it costs more to audit you. Like if you're in the uh, very top end of earners, that point zero one percent, it might cost fifteen thousand dollars to audit you because your taxes are freaking yep. complicated, right? Yep. But yep. on average, you'll get an initial additional ninety thousand in tax revenue from that audit. Awesome return on investment. Yeah, I'd buy that stock all day. And then what happens is that's like the one year return. What's super fascinating is for the next 14 years, those people, anyone that gets audited is like, oh my goodness. Like you're talking to your CPA, like don't cut any corners, do this. This is what they were on top of us. So basically, if you look at this return over a 14 year period, it's a 12x return for those, those top income earners, right? It's... What you said, Douglas, it's just like it, whether it's top half or top 20% or certainly top 1%, like this should almost be the branding would really matter. It would, but say like we're, we're providing you a personal co- concierge to basically file your taxes for you or support any question you could ever have because it's better for the actual revenue side of the U.S. government. And it's not better because they're ripping anyone off. They're just actually following the letter of the law. Yeah. It, it makes me think about, and I'm sure this is out there somewhere, but it makes me think about how there's a lot of conversation that exists around the effective tax rate for higher income folks. Mm-hmm. It's like your their effective tax rate is so low because of all the rules and regulations that allow them to have credits and probably more um, write-offs and whatnot. And that that is true. And I'm also just wondering how much they just don't do them <laughs> properly. Like, does he is the effective tax rate there because they cut a corner and know they're not going to get audited? I don't know. I don't know what the percentage breakdown is exactly there, but this would show that there's at least some amount of it where the effective tax rate is lower because there are things that you didn't claim, write-offs that you took that weren't legitimate, or whatever it might be. Yeah, I, I feel like I want to talk about this delicately. I'm really not trying to take either side of the political talking points here. But the frustrating thing about taxes, from my perspective, is it's like you're doing that really hard math problem and you can't flip to the back of the book and, and check out the answer key, right? So yeah. A lot of times it's like, well, to the best of my ability, I think this is what the tax code, like, I think this is what they're asking that number to be. It would be sure. amazing what, if you're trying to be all nice and whatnot. And legitimately, whether it's intentional or unintentional, I'm just wondering what what part of the effective tax rate comes from the taxes not being filed correctly versus legitimate credits and write-offs that have been put into law. That that's what I'm curious about, given the extent, like the difference between some of these elements. That's all I was saying. I'm not trying to get into politics. I just I'm curious. No, and I hear you. Me neither. I I just am saying from my personal perspective, like it'd be nice to know what's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, (laughs) because I'm not even trying. Like it's possible you could go through my taxes and be like, oh, miss this, miss that. And I have the help of a CPA in doing those things. I just think you could brand this for the top 1% or even the top 10% to be like, this is a additional. This is the genius bar at Apple. Like, we are here for you. We're going to make your life easier. We're going to make it crystal clear exactly what to do. And everyone's taxes are going to be filed more correctly. We're moving on. This is just how the U.S. government does it. I don't know why it has to be evil, but it gets branded as evil. And then the flip side, Dougals, is like, for the people making 10K or whatever, 20K, like, don't, we should not even bother. The return on investment absolutely sucks. Um, yeah. Why? It, it just yeah. just look at the math, guys. We have the numbers here, and those are money losing endeavors. There's other ways that that benefits everyone than to audit someone 
in the lowest income bracket. Truth. The good news, which you're taking a little while to get to, the good news is that because of all this data, the IRS has known all this, right? Because of all this data, the IRS has been doing more and more auditing over the years, right? See, I didn't get, I didn't get a clear no, wrong, <laughs> wrong. There's no good news. You look at this data and then you look at the percent of tax returns that have been audited specifically for individuals of more than a million dollars in income. And it has gone from roughly 12% in 2010 to 1.8% in 2020. So to your, your analogy, I was, I was catfishing you, your analogy at the beginning, when you were talking about, like, imagine this is a business where you see that there's this, either this business unit, this audience that we can invest in, high ROI, what they've said is, yep, we see that. Let's do less and less of that every year. And I'm not okay. saying the IRS has done that purposefully. I mean, they've been underfunded, right, to the, to the, the purpose of the $90 billion, underfunded, et cetera. I don't think the IRS is just like, actually, we prefer not to do that for the most part. But you contrast those two things, and it is mind-boggling. This is where I wanted. This is where I wanted to wrap. Thank you for getting there. I don't <laughs> catfish you to get there. But... If I lead the RRS and I have this data set, I would say it would be negligent, and I should be replaced if I didn't adjust who gets audited to maybe not maximize revenues, but smartly increase revenues. Which means you have to audit the top earners. That's just. The only way to get there. Why ha Why isn't that the case? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, I could say a part of it has to do with funding, what we discussed. And a part of it has, these are, I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive. The funding also comes at the behest of we want, whoever we is, want smaller government and don't want the important people to get upset. Because if we all just wanted the right answer, which is what you're saying, just give me the right answer, bruh. If we all just wanted the right answer, you could either say, yes, increase your audits, or it would probably even still be a positive ROI if you just assign certain people, government, like accountants, and said every year, Jacob is going to do your taxes. Yeah. Like, there's no need to audit. They're just, they're just going to come. They're going to show up, right? They're going to show up on March 15th, spend a month doing your taxes. Like that's just going to happen every year and that's going to cost more than the $15,000, right? On average, but still who cares? ROI. No, I mean, I, I actually think it might cost less than the $15,000 to prepare from scratch rather than like audit someone else's yeah, complex nonsense. But yeah, you're right. I, there's not the simple data driven solution that I want, which is follow the numbers. Let's do this right. Make bring in more money and make everyone's life easier. But man, I wish there was because the data here is crystal clear. It is crystal clear. I'm going to follow the numbers, reach into the fishbowl and follow the numbers. But I'm going to follow it to corporations P&L statements. Okay? I'm talking about some profit and some loss up here when I talk about P&L statements. There are two different sides of this that I'm going to touch on. Oh, maybe two different angles I'm going to look at it. With. They're not really two different sides. One we talked about a few months back, which is that companies are now, according to this M factor, right? One measure of looking at the potential for fraud in companies' income statements at a 40 year high. I think we talked about this back in April, maybe two or three months back. We discussed this how there's this, uh, this one factor that looks at eight different uh, ratios that they find on corporations' income statements. And to say when these ratios are a little off, it generally flags something that says, yeah, you should take a second gander because there might be something to foul here. That, that's, that's one thing to look at. And what they're seeing is that that's at a 40-year high and there are more adjustments that companies are taking that are just like playing with timing or playing with accounting, seemingly. I'm not trying to throw any shade here. I just want to state, I'll give like one example of what I mean. One of the examples that was put into this Wall Street Journal piece is Google. There were two things that it said Google did this year. 
One is the company revised its estimate on the useful life of its server infrastructure. They said now it's going to take six years of useful life until it's fully depreciated versus four years. Why is that important for those folks that are not deep into income statements? Depreciation is when you take an asset and you say, over the, over the life of this asset, I'm going to take a certain amount of cost. I'm going to assign a certain amount of cost from that asset and subtract it from our revenue. The longer the life of that asset, the less cost you pull out every year. And so Google's saying we've got these the server infrastructure, and historically we said it's going to last four years. Now we say it's going to last six years. And I don't think Google's the only one that's doing this. This is just, just an example that's brought up. What that means is that our costs are going to go down, or sorry, our assigned costs are going to go down. And so therefore yeah, profit goes up. And so the reason that's fascinating is because that's you get into the, all these gray areas of like it's someone's best judgment. But yep. then it actually changes, like real life changes, the net income at the bottom of your income yep. statement, your PL. And so there's all it's always been like mm, a little wishy-washy. But then when people start making changes to it, because yeah. say their top line is hit, all of a sudden their net income figures might look the same when all they're doing is uh, pushing the envelope behind the scenes. It's really interesting. I want to mm -hmm. call it shady. That's not always fair. <laughs> so, but, um, but it's It's funny how it happens in times like this, Dougals. I'll tell you, I used to work for a big bank, did a lot of financing. We would finance... Um, Simple things, sometimes just like people's computers for the office. If we financed those, we would tell them that the computers had to have a useful life of two to three years, meaning that you had to plan to replace the computer after that period of time. And then personally, this is long ago when computers didn't change rapidly. We would say those computers would last in our office for five years. Well, <laughs> think about what that means. It actually means that the company financing the product is saying the useful life of this product is three years or less. But then in their own accounting would say that product's going to last for five years. It's shady. It, it, it doesn't make any it's, sense. But unfortunately, it happens all the time. It's interesting <laughs> for, for your other. The other thing that Google did was it shifted its stock-based compensation award. So we talked about stock-based comp, right, which is an expense on the income statement from January to March of this year. So less of its Q1 revenue gets hit in that world. Okay. What I also, and this, what I'm about to say is not a Google thing. I just think it's, it's a human thing. And I think it's a lot, it's a load of fun is you start growing your company, investing in growth and growth and growth. And you're like, yeah, you should pay attention to our, look at our top line growth. How amazing is this? Why are you looking at these other numbers? When we got top line growth, that's phenomenal. And then Top line growth starts to slow down. So then you start to adjust some of your expenses and you go, why are you looking at our top line growth when our <laughs> profit's gone up? <laughs> right? it's, human beings are absolutely fascinating. I love it. I love it. And to even to that, that factor I was talking about before, what it doesn't say is if this thing goes off, it's all shady and it's all red flags. It's to your point. It says, it's worth looking at. It's interesting when this many organizations are adjusting the way that they look at the world. It's interesting. There's probably some kind of incentive they might have, right, to do such. And so that's that's all we're saying there. Munger over there talking about incentives. <laughs> oh, there it is. Uh, the second angle around corporate profits I want to look at is the impact that corporate profits could be having on inflation. So we all know inflation's up right now. It's been cooling off a little bit, but still double the rate that the Federal Reserve would like. And so there's this piece in the uh, that's by the Institute for New Economic Thinking. The title is Profit Inflation is Real. What this looked at was what's the contribution to inflation, what's the potential contribution? Because it's a lot. It's, economics is complicated when you're looking at stuff like this. Potential contribution uh, to inflation of corporate profits. And there were two things in this piece that I found to be interessant. The first was 
they looked at since 2020 what profit markup looks like. So what's the change in like let's just to, to make keep it simple, what's the change in profit margin that's occurring? Like a company's uh increasing their actual markup. And what they found was by yeah, the answer was yes, by 15.7%. And so actual markup that companies were taking is increasing by about 15.7% in aggregate. And then what I found to be even more interesting was they were comparing some version of that rate to what we saw in the 1970s because the 1970s was the last big inflationary time period and what they effectively found was in the 1970s costs were going up like labor costs were going up wages were going up all that stuff was going up and companies just made less money they went oh our, our profits are actually going down they made less money whereas now there's more pricing power generally across the market in theory and so companies are raising the amount of money that they're they're making and that profit margin I was talking about to give you a couple of figures when they compared corporate profit the contribution of corporate profits to inflation as calculated by economists so whatever whatever grain of salt you want to take that with they see the corporate profits con contribute about 40% to inflation now and about 13% to inflation back in the 1970s whereas unit labor costs contributed 56% to inflation back in the 1970s and 45% now, and unit non-labor costs about 31% in the 1970s and 16% now. In summary, it's saying corporate profits are far outpacing the contribution to inflation they did back in the 1970s. Just compare those two angles. I thought this was an interesting, it's academic. So none of these are, are in exact science, but I found it to be a really interesting look at inflation and what could be costing it from a corporate profit perspective. So when you talk about that profit markup, yep. is a, a real life example of that someone like Procter and Gamble, who sells they sell a bunch of um, like paper towels and stuff among a thousand other things, right? Or diapers or whatever. It, is that you're saying? Hey, these, yeah. this box of diaper used to cost thirty bucks. Inflation hit; they now cost thirty five. People are still buying them at a similar rate. So my uh, production costs, my labor costs, let's assume those stayed fairly uh, fixed. I was able to, I had pricing power to bring in five additional bucks per box of sell that shows up at my top line. And then it cascades down. It when that 15.7% yeah. number is roughly a proxy for that. It, yes, exactly. Yeah. So they're, they're saying back in the 1970s in that same example, you come in to buy the, di the diapers, the diapers were $30 before and now my costs have gone up and I'm going to say, oh, okay, well, I'm looking at the consumer from the consumer angle. I can charge $32 back yep. in the 1970s. So you've still increased your price, but your, your costs have gone up. So you're probably going to lose money or at least not make as much. Whereas now, yeah, they're increasing it to $35. And so that, that is the, that's the additional amount that, that math doesn't work out exactly right, but I know, I know what generally what it is. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> The initial reaction to that is, of course, there's um, more consolidation has happened from now to the 70s is, is for your general grocery store goods. You know, it's all owned by like 12 companies. And so because of that, they should have more pricing power. There should be more automation. There should be more efficiencies of scale that come with technology, computers, everything else. I think the question for me is just how long that lasts, because your pricing power. This goes back to our burrito example exactly. and gambling last week. Like exactly. at some point, people just revolt, even mm -hmm. if there is less choice. And so far, I've read a bunch of articles in the past 18 months about folks like PG having more pricing power than they expected. But that that just can't last forever. It's exactly right. It's part of the same conversation, but from like a economics uh, ec economist academic article perspective than, um, than we talked about last week, but it's part of the same thing. At some point, people start to revolt, which to a certain extent, we don't have to talk about this right now, but some people have with tipping. Oh, I, I'm getting there, Douglas. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let, let's go there. I got, I got one other thing in my fishbowl. Let's go there. And can I just start with a rant? Like, yeah. The, these people, not these people. <laughs> <laughs> Who are these people? I mean, it's been so 
disconnected. Unfortunately, everyone got their new merchant machine from Toast or whoever. Whoever runs their restaurant gave them this fancy new device. Could be squares, could be whatever. It's touchscreen. You can flip it over. You can set your default tips. And everyone was like, these are so great. And we'll just set our default tips a little higher than average. And then that's been cascading for three years. Now, there are times where computers, it's not even people, and I want to make that distinction clearly, ask for a tip when no human was involved and ask for a tip north of 20%. And to me, that hurts all the people that actually deserve tips because it's like, wait, this computer deserves 25% on this transaction when there's literally no... It's so disconnected yep. from like someone giving you great service at a restaurant that I think the whiplash here is going to hurt the entire industry. It seems like it might be already to the the point of like hitting the line. I think it was it must have been last year when I came on this very show. Well, I came on. I come on the show every week. You were a special I came on. Guest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I exactly. You on. I came on this very show and said, when that tipping screen comes up, I just look to the far right and I hit the button, right? You remember yeah, when, I, when I said that? Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. I have found over like the last month, I found myself being like, oh, like, I, like I, it's, there's a, it's a physical reaction that I'm starting to have. I love tipping. I like, it's one of my favorite activities and it's becoming so painful and it's not just me, apparently. I'm going to give an example from Toast. Because you talked about Toast. So it's a digital payment platform. It's like the, the point of sale system that many places are using right now. There's this stat that shows that on average, the, uh, the on-premise like tip right that you get for quick service restaurants has declined to 16.7% in the first quarter of 2023, which is the lowest that it's been in five years. 41% of Americans, according to a bank rate survey, believe that businesses should just pay their employees better rather than relying on tips. Mm -hmm. U.S. adults show 65% of people say they always tip servers, down from 73% last year and 77% in 2019. People are getting over it, and 66% of people have a negative view now of tipping. So... What? What percentage have a negative view? 66%. So even if you take 66% have a negative view on tipping and 65% say they always tip, there's, there's some overlap. So some people are begrudgingly, like they are, they are hitting that yeah. button so hard with anger and fervor. And that's when you, that, that is a precursor to a cliff. When you get angry about the thing, but you're still doing it, you're not going to keep doing it for all that long. It's not supposed to be this way. This almost reminds me of the IRS conversation. Like chippy, tipping should be a joyful thing. It should be like, this yeah. is, thank you. You made my day better. Like here, I want to reward that financially. Like this was a transaction that happened. It was a win-win all around. Like it, my coffee mug was always full. My food was delicious. Yep. You helped my kids when he spilled his cup of water. You know, like yep, that yep, yep, is yep. should be joyful. Um, not a tax. Not a tax. Not a tax. But it, I think these touch screens. Uh, and by the way, speaking of toast, shout out to Brian, my boy at Toast, who prepared that stat. I know that guy. Oh yeah. So uh, oh. yeah. But if someone gives me incredibly below average service and throws a screen in my face that uh, gives me three options of 25 30 and 35 <laughs> percent what, what happens when i have to hit the other like seven digits is they're much more likely to get a lower tip than they would if there was a 15 percent or even a 10 percent on that screen like just make your default options somewhat reasonable i don't care if your default options are like 15 20 and 45 percent it makes me think but about I don't remember the exact survey, but we were talking a few months ago about a, a survey in China. It was like 98% of Chinese people are happy with the government. It was like something. It wasn't that, but it was something like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And we went, did they show up and say, on a scale of 9 to 10, how do you feel about like, <laughs> the Chinese government? <laughs> this is, it's gotten out of hand. And I would love for it to be a joyous 
decision that rewards um, people that are great at their job. But it, that's not what it is anymore. And it's I painful. think it needs to be recalibrated. Mm -hmm. Especially when you have it's it's in it's inflation on top of inflation. When you have the prices at the restaurants that have gone up by 20, 30%, right? Something like that. And then the default tip has gone from a 10, 15, 20 mm -hmm. to a 25, 30, 35, right? So so that has also gone up by double, let's say. Then your overall cost of going to a restaurant is now up 35%, 40%. I mean, that's it's yep. an aggressive Oh, and then you have the the 4% to give our kitchen healthcare that that yep. happens, you know, all this other stuff. I just realized Diggles what's going to happen here and it's going to be the most hilarious thing. Some congressman is going to try and mandate the required selections <laughs> for tips. Oh my it's goodness. It's only going to happen in the next oh my goodness. 12 months. Can't. And they're going to be like, it has to be X, Y, Z. And then some states are probably going to have laws about what the required tipping percentages should be. It's hilarious. Oh. All right. What's the last thing in your fishbowl? Actually, two quick things, maybe three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Props. Standing. Uh, I mean, just props on tops of props to the NVIDIA management team. Those guys are selling stock like, it's on fire and good for them. That makes me so confident in the future of this company, not the stock price, the future yes. of this company. You have some smart people running that company because they are literally dumping shares like they're on fire and props to them. So proud of you guys. Thank you. Um, <laughs> if you want to send 10% my way, feel free. But this is the best corporate finance uh, I've seen in a long time. And literally everyone is selling everything. The the next 10Q that NVIDIA has should have a line item for number of GPUs sold and line item for number of shares of stock sold by management. And just put those put those next to each other. I'm very curious about the correlation. Basically all that matters. They're just like, I saw a couple of screenshots. Literally, it's all sales. No one's buying at all that has. I mean, why would you? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's... A ridiculous bet. Like a ridiculous bet. Props to them. All right. Uh, this was Monday last week. Apparently, Kathy Wood sold four hundred thousand dollars or four hundred thousand shares of Tesla and bought some meta shares. Dougals, this caused a really tough week for me. Do I have to sell <laughs> my meta stake? Because if Kathy Wood is jumping on board, we all know what that means. I mean, we we have a strong inclination. Talk about correlation causation here. I I'm not at my year mark yet, which makes me so sad. Like it makes me I'm and if I were at my year mark, I'm not saying I'd definitively sell, but at least I would I'd have that optionality. Whereas now and now I'm starting to do the calculation a little bit. When she starts buying, I'm like, okay, what is the difference in the tax hit versus what impact yeah, yeah. she's probably going to have? Yeah, right. short-term capital gains versus long-term capital yeah. gains when you've doubled your money. Uh, uh, that, that was really tough for me to stomach. Oh, my goodness. It's her research is the problem. She's the only person I know that can research the future. <laughs> I don't know how she does it, but she does it. All right, last thing, at least in my fishbowl. If you look at PE ratios, price to earnings ratios for U.S. growth stocks and U.S. small value stocks hmm. versus their couple year averages. Um, and if you do the same with price to book, you're going to see what we've been telling you for years now, which maybe we're like Jeremy Grantham at this point, or maybe I am because <laughs> I've been way early on this. Uh, in May, U.S. growth stocks average P.E. ratio is almost 29. The the last two year average is more like 24. Um, mm -hmm. It's out over at skis. US value stocks historical average has been more like 15, currently trading around nine. The cheap things have gotten cheaper in 2023, and the more expensive things have gotten more expensive. I think that's the best way to say this graphic, but every time it gets me. Yeah. It's just. I know. It's bewildering. Every time. It's bewildering. I still believe, and this is a put all up in my mouth, down my throat, most likely at the end of the year. But I still say that I think the stock market's going to 
hit its all-time high again before the fall. It's just, when you look at things like that, it's nonsensical. What's going on out there is fairly nonsensical, especially driven by the salacious slash magnificent seven. Yep. But now you are starting to see this past week, you're starting to see more stocks that are joining the rally. I'm not saying that that makes it any, any better necessarily, (laughs) but at least it's not just seven stocks. I think there was something this week I saw that I can't remember if you sent this over to me or if I I saw it elsewhere that the, the S and P 493 has now finally joined the the S and P five hundred. It's amazing, <laughs> increasing in yeah. value. Yeah. Oh, Anything yeah. That's else all in your fishbowl. No, that's all I had. Okay. Thanks for hanging out with us this week. Uh, hit skippydougals.com for all things Skippy Dougals. Skippydougals at gmail for listener mail, and the Twitter is at Skippy Peace, guys. <laughs>